This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 91 is the author of Finding Jung, Frank N. McMillan III in Corpus Christi, Texas. He holds a master's degree in geography from Texas A&M University College Station and trained at the International School for Holocaust Studies at Yah Vashem in Jerusalem as a participant in the Holocaust and Jewish Resistance Teachers Program. Over the last 30 years, he has been an adjunct faculty member at Texas A&M University Corpus Christi and Del Mar College, where he teaches world geography. A proponent of Holocaust education, his 2006 young adult novel, Cezanne is Missing, has been taught in schools across the country. His lifelong interest in and respect for the history and traditions of the indigenous peoples of the Americas influenced a second book, The Young Healer, which won the National Association of Elementary School Principals Foundation Book of the Year Award and was a finalist for the Mark Twain Readers Award. In 2012, Texas A&M University Press released his nonfiction work, Finding Jung, an exploration of his father's personal experience of the objective psyche. The following year, he was inducted into the International Association for Analytical Psychology, the IAAP, as an honorary member at its 19th International Congress held in Copenhagen, Denmark. Frank has served on the board of several environmental and human service organizations and currently works with nonprofit groups that address homelessness, poverty, illiteracy, and other urgent social issues. He is the founder of the Frank N. McMillan Jr. Institute for Jungian Studies at the Jung Center in Houston, Texas, where he serves as a board member. The McMillan Institute hosts local and online educational experiences that advance Jung's exploration of the frontiers of the human soul and is now home to the annual Fay Lecture Series. Since 2018, he has served as a trustee for the Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara, California, and recently co-founded the Academy of Imaginal Arts and Sciences, which asks the question, what does it mean to be human in a digital world? Next year, Frank will be speaking at the Eranos Conference, Jung's Red Book for Our Time searching for soul under postmodern conditions, held April 28th through May 1st in Ascana, Switzerland. Additional presenters include Speaking of Jung guests Murray Stein, Leonard Cruz, Lance Owens, and next month's guest Nancy Ferlotti. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, September 15th, 2021, through the magic of Rogamiba. Thank you so much for joining us today, Frank. Laura, the thanks are all mine. I'm just really honored and delighted to be here. Well, thank you so much. You're very welcome. This is my, this is a real, a genuine pleasure. Your book, Finding Young, Frank N. McMillan Jr., A Life in Quest of the Lion, is part of the annual Fay Lecture Series. So I would like to begin with a history of what that is and your involvement. The series itself uh, started in um, 
first speaker was in, uh, must have been in 89. Uh, it was Verena Kost uh, from Switzerland. And that series was very generously endowed by Carolyn Grant Fay, who was the, the guiding light of the Jung Center in Houston. And she was a very dear friend of my father's. And she wanted that uh, lecture series, which has just been an incredible success featuring some of the most renowned Jungian analysts in the world yeah. uh, since that time. Uh, she wanted that series to complement the uh, professorship my father endowed at Texas A&M University at College Station, uh, based on really starting with a dream, a very profound dream he had as a small boy in Depression-era Texas, uh, right before his death, uh, only a few years before he died, and he died quite young at the age of 60, he endowed the world's first professorship in Jungian psychology at Texas A&M. And the first uh, holder of that uh, seat was David Rosen, MD, who is uh, known for his work with uh, people who survived uh, suicide attempts off uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, has some, some wonderful books like The Tao of Jung. It's just a wonderful and kind and wise uh, analyst and psychiatrist. And we'll speak about him as well, but I would like for you to tell us about this book and what's in it and why you wrote it. It's beautiful. There are a lot of photos in it. And the foreword was written by Sir Lawrence Vanderpost, who was a friend of Jung's and a friend of your father's. So would you tell us about that relationship? Yes. Um, Lawrence Vanderpost was uh, a renowned British uh, author, explorer, uh, conservationist. Uh, he became well known through his uh, friendship with the Prince of Wales and Margaret Thatcher and was just one of the most uh, uh, sort of brilliant uh, uh, exponents of living meaning in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he came out of the African world. He left when he was quite young. To, apartheid did not become official until 1948, but as early as the 1920s, he was born in 1906, he was publishing a uh, a magazine called the Wurschlag, the Whiplash, with uh, William Plumer and uh, Roy Campbell that was against race hatred. And his first book, In a Province, was the story of, uh, of a European-descended African and an African uh, young man, a story of black and white and reconciliation. That book was called In a Province. Uh, he moved to England in the 1930s, and then he had a brilliant career as a commando in both Abyssinia and Java, uh, uh, as a, where he was captured in Java, and he'd been to Japan as a young man, so he spoke Japanese fluently, and that probably saved his life. But he had a very hard war as a prisoner, uh, and that experience was later made into a movie starring uh, A Bar of Shadow, The Prisoner and the Bomb, these books he wrote. Uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence was the movie that was uh, David Bowie or Bowie was in it. Um, Lawrence met my father at the Jung Center in 1979. And at that two or three day event where Lawrence was speaking, and I was there too, I met him there. 
uh, dad told Lawrence about uh, this childhood dream of his, of the great African lion that really set him on the, his course for the rest of his life. And this really ignited a feeling of, of engagement and uh, excitement in Sir Lawrence uh, because it was such an African story. And so they became good friends uh, after that. They only corresponded. Uh, my father's health was such uh, that he could not travel to Africa as Lawrence invited him or to England even to see him. Mm -hmm. And after dad's death uh, in 88, Lawrence and I became very close and remained so for the rest of his life. And he's probably one of the most profound influences on my uh, 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 career, my uh, personal experiences, just a, just a very dear and close friend. Uh, he was godfather to my uh, older son. And in dad's memory, in fact, uh, my mother uh, gave the funds to uh, uh, fund a library there at the uh, Cape Town Center for Union Studies in uh, Rosebank, the neighborhood in Cape Town. Uh, and Lawrence was involved with that. And through Lawrence, I spent a great deal of time in Africa in the 1990s and had some, some very numinous experiences there. He was just a great friend and could not have been kinder and better and just very much himself. I mean, he moved in a, a world of uh, 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 high literary circles. I mean, he, he knew Virginia Woolf. Leonard and Virginia Woolf were his first publishers. Uh, uh, entertainment, he made some wonderful films about the Bushmen uh, that were shown on, BBC, on the BBC in the 1950s. But then he was a good friend to this young man from South Texas. He could not have been more authentic. And uh, uh, it was a very meaningful relationship for my father and for me, too. Mm -hmm. And I still think about him probably every day, <laughs> nearly every day. Every day, yeah. And to the listeners who are familiar with the film Matter of Heart that I've mentioned on this podcast since the beginning, which was a huge influence for me, you can see footage of Sir Lawrence Vanderpost speaking about Jung in that film, Matter of Heart, and I will provide a link to it in the show notes. So let's talk about um, your writing this book and, and, and why you wrote it. Well, you know, it was really just a remembrance of uh, my father. Mm -hmm. He was... Uh, as time goes by, and gosh, you know, he died, as I say, in 88. It's been 33 years now. Um, you know, when I was a young person and a boy, you know, it was just dad. Dad just did these dad things in yeah. which he was interested. But as further and further away, he was a very unusual person for his time and place. Uh, and I wanted to remember that. And plus, a large part uh, of the text are his journals, mm -hmm. his journal entries that he kept every morning when he got up recording his dreams and other observations. But he grew up in a very traditional uh, Victorian, almost frontier uh, milieu, um, as all good stories or many good stories do. Uh, it all began with a very strong woman and this was his great-grandmother who came to Texas as a widow with four children in 1833 uh, when it still belonged to, the, uh, to Mexico. Mm -hmm. 
and she settled there with her family in Central Texas. And that's in about the same place where my father grew up on a farm. His father was very well educated. He was sort of a Renaissance person uh, himself. Uh, he graduated from Texas A&M University. He uh, uh, served, he, he, he fought in France in the First World War. And uh, he loved poetry and Shakespeare. So my father grew up in a very traditional Victorian uh, Methodist uh, uh, sort of umwelt, but with some added details of a great deal of literacy and college education. That was a little unusual mm -hmm. for that time and place. Yeah. Uh, now, my father's grandfather, uh, William Andrew Macmillan, uh, was just a staunch and, and, and good-hearted man who on his deathbed said, uh, now I will get to gaze on the face of the master. That very literal belief in uh, traditional, uh, the traditional Christian uh, myth. And I mean that in the, the best way. Mm -hmm. My father, as he grew older, and he was very much uh, a thinking type, uh, and I would even call him an intellectual, although I don't know that he would have ever applied that label to himself. As he grew older, uh, he began to be uh, troubled by getting his feelings and his thinking uh, in sync. He really, as he, uh, in his college education, he was an engineer. He had degrees in petroleum engineering and ge geological engineer, uh, as it was called then. Mm -hmm. And in this scientific world of the 1940s, 50s, that was very much a materialist uh, uh, interpretation of reality. And he had a hard time fitting his traditional beliefs in with that model of reality. And this was very troubling with him because, I, as I say, he was a thinker. And although he had great love for his background, this scientific uh, explanation that he could only accept at that time uh, seemed very real. And so he was really sort of plunged into an existential crisis. Uh, later on, he put it very simply. He said, Jung saved my life, meaning he restored meaning and purpose. Mm. But he first encountered, and this is what really saved him during this existential crisis before he had a very profound dream. He was just seven years old. Uh, he was in the farmhouse there with his father. His mother had, was out of town visiting relatives. And he had a dream where uh, he and his father went to the home of a nearby African-American family. And they had dinner with them. They had this sort of meal of communion in front of the fireplace. Now, this was something... Uh, that was not done at this time, that a quote, white family would probably not visit the, in the home of a black family. My father's first playmates were the African-American children of the tenant farmers that lived in the community. Uh, and uh, they had very good relations with them. His grandfather was a kind and good man. Uh, uh, but this was a very profound, this was a very interesting and very demanding dream to came to this young boy, this symbol of wholeness and acceptance and really love. Mm -hmm. So in the dream, after that meal, he 
went home and went to bed in the dream as he did in reality. And then he was laying there in bed and he awoke. What was the matter? Then he looked over and the moonlight there standing in the door of his bedroom was a huge African lion, the big sort of, uh, sort of stardust, you know, trailing behind him with red Kalahari dust in his mane and this lion silently padded over to him and then stared down at him. My father was paralyzed. He couldn't shout. You know, you hear about these dreams and they're, you know, night yeah. terrors and where you're paralyzed. And then the lion opened up his mouth and he saw these huge incisors. And then he, instead of devouring my father, licked him in a very affectionate uh, uh, motion. Mm-hmm. And my father then woke up and screamed and woke up his father and alerted the house, etc. He was seven years old at the time, right? Seven years old. And he always remembered that dream. He always remembered this. Now, in his culture, in that time and place, um, this was just a dream. You yeah. know, that was what people, oh, it's just a dream. Right. And so he heard that, but he knew it wasn't. He knew it was not just anything. It was something, in fact, very profound. And it was something that was, in, in many ways, sort of a summons. And it told him that there was something in nature or coming through nature that was interested in him, was, uh, had his best interest at heart, and was something very, very profound and very numinous. But he grew up captain of the football team, uh, was in World War II, uh, in the Navy, he was uh, uh, in the Corps of Cadets at Texas A&M, got a job with uh, uh, an engineering company after the war, but he still had this troubling uh, sort of aspect of fitting in the traditional myth in which he was raised with what he understood reality to be, the scientific a materialist explanation. And then he found out about Hume. Uh, would you like to hear about that? Yes, I, I like the story about how he discovered who Jung was. And you recounted in the book, and I I took the quote of the person that 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 told your father about Jung and I tweeted it uh, yesterday afternoon oh, on Twitter. Oh gosh, yeah, I'll have to look. Yeah, and it got it got a, a huge response cuz it's a great quote. So, do you want me to read it or do you do you please, know it? Please do. I would I would love to hear it. So, your father met just by chance in a coffee shop, the artist Forrest Bess, who had just received a letter from Jung, from Jung himself. He had written to Jung and Jung wrote back and he was stunned that that somebody maybe of this caliber would take the time to respond and your father didn't know who Jung was and Forrest Bess said this, Jung is a master psychologist, a soul doctor, an esteemed writer, and one of the greatest healers of all time. Just read his books. That And that's that's um, what happened. It, it, it occurred in a little... Perhaps they didn't even have one uh, stoplight, a little town called Wadsworth, Texas. My father had been out working. He worked in the field for a a development of petroleum engineering company. 
So we stopped in a little cafe, uh, uh, you know, chicken fried steak and people would be smoking over lunch and, uh, you know, had a little chalkboard, you know, so-and-so call your wife. And, and so he was sitting there and then uh, the town uh, eccentric comes in. Well, man, that was perceived as the town eccentric. And uh, everyone sort of just, you know, ignored him. They knew, oh, that's Forrest, you know, so. And it was a, a man that uh, really lived very modestly in an old overturned shrimp boat that he had sort of fashioned to a house with tar paper and other things and, and sold bait, you know, it was out in the Matagorda Bay area, you know, just uh, netting shrimp and things to sell for money. But he was really an artist. But at any rate, everyone sort of ignored him, but he was holding up this letter and that he, he sort of sh- holding it aloft and said, he wrote me, he wrote me back. Now, my father noticed that because he noticed how electric, electric the effect of the receipt of that letter was yeah. on this strange man. So dad said, and he was always bringing people home from the YMCA or from, he'd meet downtown, he'd come eat dinner with us. He was very interested in, uh, and so he said, come up here. And everyone was ignoring this poor man. So dad said, come, you know, come here, sit, mm-hmm. eat lunch with me. And that was Forrest Best. Now, Forrest Best then introduced him to Jung. My father had never heard the name, mm-hmm. knew nothing about him. And then that's in that instant, in that moment of synchronicity, his life changed forever. Yeah. Now, Best was actually a very, mainly after his death, but even at that time, he was exhibiting in New York at the Betty Parsons Gallery with Wilhelm de Kooning and Jackson Pollock and people like that. He was an abstract expressionist and he painted images that uh, came out of his dreams, sort of symbolic glyphs and things. He was uh, really sort of pure nature uh, trying to become conscious. You know, one of my favorite Jackson Pollock quotes is, I am nature. Well, I think Forrest was too. And he, he was a troubled man. He, uh, he, he was writing to Jung, and this is how we dated probably when we have these letters. David Rosen later found the letters in the uh, archives. Um, he was writing to Jung about his theories about uniting uh, the opposites, uniting male and female. Uh, and he wanted to uh, become, Forrest did, become a hermaphrodite. He wanted to become male and female. And uh, Jung was cautioning against uh, making this very profoundly important a psychological uh, sort of uh, state of being, concretizing it, making it physical. But unfortunately, Forrest did that. He uh, he did a self-surgery, not unlike what some of the indigenous uh, Aboriginal people in Australia do, and uh, tried to make himself both male and female. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jung counseled him against doing it so literally. But he, he is a quite a well-known painter now, very profoundly important person in the abstract expressionist catalog and, and a very unusual man for his time and place. He was gay. He could not live that out authentically uh, in 1950s uh, rural Texas. And that was very troubling for him. And, uh, you know, he died in the 70s of uh, probably skin cancer from uh, being out in the sun so much. Quite an amazing man. And that's, that's, he changed my father's life. Yeah. Yeah. So after that meeting uh, with Forrest Bess, your father sought out books by Jung and read his entire collected works? Yes. You know, 
he just started reading and he started, he started uh, recording his dreams, kept, he kept uh, journals uh, every day when he got up and coming from a farm background, he got up very early for, a, 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 for me being raised in the city. Um, it was, that was quite an event, you know, he'd get up and bang around, make coffee at what seemed awfully uh, early. And um, so he would write these things down. And, you know, remember, this was uh, my earliest memories were probably the early uh, when he was doing this late 60s, early 70s. So there was no Internet. There was no Amazon. There were no chain bookstores getting the collected works. Those uh, those bowling, those bowling, excuse me, those bowling and um, the the black hardcover. Yeah, edition. the black hardcovered books, um, you know, just in, he would get a call from the local bookstore called Locker's Bookstore, Mrs. Locker. Now, and this is a completely tangential story, but she was a spiritualist. Um, she had a spiritualist church in Corpus Christi. You know, she'd go to somebody's house and the doorbell would ring before she, you know, came up on the doorstep. Just all these sorts of little stories people tell. But at any rate, Locker's Bookstore. So we would, uh, one of the collected works would come in. I particularly remember uh, Aeon uh, with the, the, the Mithratic uh, yes. Lion Man, yes. uh, you know, in the, in the frontispiece. But these black books, you know, and he would, I could tell how excited he would get and how, uh, uh, you know, the effect they had on him. And it really, uh, uh, you know, that had such a, uh, made such a profound impression on me. So you were you were being influenced by Jung simultaneously with your father. I mean, how old were you at this time? Well, you know, like 70, 71, I was 13 turning 14. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the thing about dad, he never pushed Jung on me or said, read these, you know, mm-hmm. because he was authentic enough in his own self that he did not want to uh, try to shape me in a way that was unnatural or out of proportion for me. Sure. If I wasn't interested in it, then I wouldn't be interested in it, but I was, and I started reading uh, probably, you know, probably earlier than I, you know, should have or needed to, but I started reading young at that age, 13, 14. Yeah. You know, not, not, not seriously, but I did. Yeah. I did pay a great deal of attention. And by, by the time I was a freshman in college, I was very, seriously into uh, Jungian psychology and uh, mythology. And I remember being a freshman in college and finding the the very large uh, mythic image book by Joseph Campbell. And just that just was what a enchanting, uh, a land of enchantment that opened up for me. But so I grew up around Jung uh, as a quite young boy and then teenager and uh, just have continued from there but my father never pushed it he, he was he, he was he he wanted you know me to be me and he as everyone he wants them to be themselves mm-hmm. and he your father sought out the Jung Center of Houston um, because they had a bookstore and that's where he met Sir Lawrence Vanderpost so how did right. that happen well we had um uh uh he got involved with the Young Center starting probably early mid seventies. The, the present building they're in, which is a 
lovely site right there by the Contemporary yeah. Arts Museum and Museum of Fine Arts in the Museum District in Houston. Just an incredibly rich intellectual and artistic atmosphere. I think they got into that building in 74. So that's the earliest place I remember going. The center itself had started back in the 50s when right. four very, well, five really very wise women that had well, initiated by uh, Ruth Thacker Fry, who'd studied with Jung, opened up the center and then they just asked uh, Jung himself. They wrote him a letter, said, may we start a center in your name in Houston? And he wrote back and said, yes. And that letter's framed there. So we started going there, as I remember, in the uh, early 70s. And, uh, and again, pre-internet, pre-chain bookstores, right. uh, this library, but more importantly, this bookstore. Um, that was, for me, going through the looking glass. This was uh, The Wizard of Oz when the film turns color. Yeah. To see all these books that were really ungettable. Uh, I grew up in a town, uh, you know, a city, it was 300,000 uh, on the coast, a pleasant, very pleasant place, but it just, you couldn't find such things. And so we started going there. Then Lawrence was speaking in 79 and dad had read his book, uh, Jung and the Story of Our Time, which a biography of Jung. And I think one of my favorites because Jung, uh, Lawrence knew Jung personally and spent time with him in Switzerland and his wife, Ingerich. Gifford uh, was training, trained under uh, Jung, trained in Zurich. Um, and Jung had very profound African experiences, and he loved uh, uh, sharing these with Lawrence. And so they had that great commonality that was such a tie. Mm -hmm. And so dad really wanted to, he'd read that uh, uh, Lawrence book, so he really wanted to meet him and listen to him. And that was in 79. And they just, immediately uh, clicked. Mm -hmm. And one thing Lauren writes about a lot is the Bushman stories of particularly Mantis, which is sort of a trickster figure. And uh, we had gone to a Houston hotel to eat lunch and dad and I took Lawrence with a couple of other people. And Lawrence was standing in front of the gift shop in the hotel there. And he was talking as we were waiting, you know, for a table or whatever. And right on the shelf, perched, right? Like it was sitting on Lawrence's shoulder uh, was a brass mantis uh, that he had just talked about the mantis in the talk. So these little synchronicities surrounded all of this, uh, what became a familial relationship, but particularly the image of the lion was profoundly important. Dad told that dream to Lawrence and, you know, he really lit up on, upon hearing it. And there's a Bushman story of about where a, a, a lion licks the tears of a young hunter that he has, uh, uh, this lion comes upon a Bushman hunter. And as today, we would say the San people or the Kung people or the Juwasi people, you know, that's the Bushman is this sort of a colloquial name. Um, uh, and so the, the hunter played dead. So the lion picked him up and kind of put him in the fork of the tree and uh, would, you know, save him to come back later, you know, to uh, eat. And uh, it hurt the young hunter being there in the crook of the tree. And, you know, he, he wept and the lion came up to him later and, and licked his tears. And so that same sort of acceptance, that same uh, uh, sort of lion's kiss that my father received mm -hmm. in history was mm -hmm. in this many hundred of year, if not thousands of years old story. 
And so that really, that, that cemented their bond. And Sir Lawrence referred to your father as a white Bushman. Well, that's a story. I, I did not hear that personally. He, okay. he, he said that to, uh, I think, David Rosen. But so, and, and, and what he meant was, I think, my father uh, had that same uh, acceptance of nature, that same acceptance of meaning and purpose and uh, uh, the, the great mysterious, as the Lakota people say, mm-hmm. Wakantanka, or as the Zulu say, the Mkulu Mkulu, he who is greater than great. He had that sort of relationship. And I, I think, and just that natural way of being, I, I would think that's what that means. I would like to talk about Dr. Rosen, but just in finishing up about Sir Lawrence, there's something in the book that I would love to read. Uh, what he said about your father, he said, in sum, Frank McMillan was a modern and contemporary expression of the process of individuation and search for the self. The discovery of the area, the objective area, where the divine in life meets the battered ego of man, embraces and heals it and makes it whole. He is the clearest example of what Jung hoped for, the so-called man of life, outside the professional and academic walls, to have received the word as Jung received it and followed it to the end where what is divine and humanly accessible in the brief here and now is made truly human and humanly transcended. I think that what he did, therefore, is of immense importance to the Jungian search and is important, I am certain, to the evolution of the cosmos. And so, is Sir Lawrence referring to what your father did for Jungian psychology, that being establishing the professorship of analytical psychology at Texas A&M University, which I don't think a lot of people know about. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on this podcast is to let people know, because one of the things I hear a lot is Jung is not taught in academia and Jung is frowned upon. Well, here we have this wonderful program at Texas A&M, and I'd like for you to tell us about that and about Dr. David Rosen, who I have a story about that I'd like to tell, Uh-oh. and how that all began and where it stands now. Right. Well, so my father, uh, he, he was very unwell the last few years of his life. He had benign pituitary tumors. Uh, but with the technology of the time, and he went to San Francisco, he had surgeries mainly in Houston at the medical center, one of the most important medical centers in the world. I mean, when we were there for his surgeries in the 70s, there were sheiks from uh, Arabian royalty were there. I mean, people came from all over. Uh, even there was one Sinti or Roma family that the first surgery, my mother was alone in the, the waiting room before I came there from college, and uh, she was surrounded by the old term gypsies. Uh, these people were so loving and so wonderful, hugging her and patting on her. And being with her uh, while my father was undergoing this very uh, life-threatening uh, surgery, he, you know, he went blind at one point mm. because the tumors had grown around his uh, uh, his uh, his, uh, his, his optic uh, nerves. nerves, yeah, optic nerves, and uh, and kind of they had to strip those off. And he oh, he wore an eye patch uh, on one eye after, uh, subsequent to that surgery. 
you know, and, and again, this was in 76. They sort of cut him from ear to ear and then had to sort of lift, peel his skull back and then lift it up and look under it. You know, they couldn't, they couldn't image it with the technology at that time. Very, in many ways, sort of, you know, it's not too different from the ultra panning where they drill a hole in the, in the skull. Uh, but it worked. It worked for a time, uh, and then, it, and then it, and, until it until it didn't. But right before he died, he wanted to do something he thought was very important. He'd made some money. He'd been successful in business, and he was he was as as I said, he was very bright, very astute, and worked very hard. So he'd been successful, and you know he didn't want a boat. He didn't want another house. He didn't want to buy an island in the Caribbean. He wanted to do something that was meaningful and would help others as he had been helped. And he wanted to set up a position where young people uh, that were questioning, uh, uh, that had existential questions, could uh, find uh, uh, a place that could provide teaching and reading and comfort as they walked that journey to becoming their truest selves. And so he endowed this professorship at Texas A&M and College Station. Today, that school has, uh, you know, 70,000 students. It's like Ohio State or mm. Michigan State. It's a Morrill land-grant college, very heavily uh, into science, engineering, and now today's the liberal arts as well. But this was in 84. And he said, I, I want to fund up uh, professorship and analytical psychology. Well, he had to explain what that was really uh, to the, uh, the university president and other people. Um, and the psychology department at that time was very much, uh, as academic psychology in many ways still is, was very materialist, very much a behaviorist sort of school. They were still running, uh, you know, doing things with rats and et cetera. And those things are necessary. But in some cases, but they're only partial and very slight, uh, incomplete explanations of reality, yeah. not total. And my yeah. father knew that. My father knew that. And, and then he, one of the bravest things I ever saw him do was uh, justify this professorship. He went in by himself and talked to a somewhat hostile psychology department that he, what he wanted to do. And he came out of that meeting and they by being with him and listening to him, they accepted that professorship. And it was like a dream come true. It was 25 years of just happiness, research, uh, grad students going all over the world. And then this Faye lecture series. Mm -hmm. um, uh, David Rosen was the first and only professor at A&M. Uh, he uh, came in 1986. He'd been in uh, at, at uh, in upstate New York. Um, he'd started out at the Langley Porter Clinic and did work in San Francisco with, as I mentioned, survivors of the Golden Gate Bridge. And what he found out with these survivors is that they didn't want to kill themselves. You know, they were so amazed they'd survived that tremendous drop. They didn't want to kill themselves. They wanted to change something in their ego, and he called it egocide. Mm -hmm. And that was a very important research uh, project. He later put that into a book called Transforming Depression. So David, you know, the, the, the Taoists talk about the right man at the right place, thinking the right thoughts. David was that person. 
engaging, thoughtful, kind. We're really sort of brothers. I, I met him then in 86. And he taught classes in the psychology origin. He had a dual appointment in the college. Of, he was a psychiatrist. He had a dual appointment in the College of Medicine, and he was a union analyst, so he was in the psychology department. And then Carolyn endowed that uh, Fay Lecture Series in about three years after the professorship really got going. And then for 25 years, world-changing sorts of research, graduate students, these Fay Lectures with these wonderful people from all over the world, Africa, France, Japan, uh, later China, England, the United States, I mean, just all the big names in Jungian psychology uh, came to College Station, a pretty small college town. It's really a college town. It's grown. It's kind of a suburb of Houston now. Mm-hmm. This is a very unusual place for this to have happened. Yeah. But it's a true story. It's, uh, too, as the saying goes, too strange not to be true. Mm-hmm. I'd like to mention something about Dr. Rosen, who, as as you said, is he's an MD, he's a psychiatrist, and he's also a Jungian analyst. And his book, Transforming Depression, was probably the first book written by an, a Jungian analyst that I ever picked up. And I didn't remember that. Yesterday, I was tweeting something by Marion Woodman, a Jungian analyst, And I responded to somebody on Twitter that her book, Addiction to Perfection, was the first book written by a Jungian analyst that I had read. And now I'm thinking that it was probably Transforming Depression by Dr. Rosen because it was published in 1993, which is the year I began my analysis. And I found that book in my local library because, you know, back then, and even still today, and this is kind of a pet peeve of mine, is anytime a woman experiences any kind of emotional issue, pop psychology wants to tell her that she's depressed, she has depression, and she needs to be medicated out of it, which infuriates me. And it's one of the things that I talk about a lot on this podcast. But In that book, Transforming Depression, um, the subtitle is Healing the Soul Through Creativity. It was later republished in 2002 as part of the Jung on the Hudson book series that was instituted by the New York Center for Jungian Studies. Dr. Rosen, as you mentioned, uh, looks at these cases of kind of failed suicides and and what was really underneath uh, those attempts and coined the term egocide and was talking uh, to Murray Stein on one of the episodes uh, about ego and ego death and what that is. So we're not going to take the time to to uh, get into it here, but I would just like to refer people who might be interested in that book. I will provide a link to it in the show notes. Again, it's titled Transforming Depression, Healing the Soul Through Creativity. So I interrupted you what were we were talking about Dr. Rosen and his professorship and I I would like to read something that he wrote in the preface to the book. So back to your book Finding Young, uh as I mentioned the foreword is by Sir Lawrence Vanderpost and the preface 
is by both you and Dr. Rosen. So it's in two parts. And in Dr. Rosen's preface, he says this about your dad. He says he helped bring analytical psychology into the mainstream of university life. His action has illuminated the dark halls of academic psychology. A fitting amplification of Frank's deed would be for others so moved to endow professorships in analytical psychology at universities around the world. Frank did his part. Now it is up to us. Yeah, no, that's a that's a that's a lovely statement. And I know that Marion Woodman uh, uh, created something in Canada, and I'm, there's also the University of Essex. There's a few places. But you not, but not every story, not every journey is smooth. Mm-hmm. And so we have to take the rough with the smooth. And 25 years after this professorship started, that was really, uh, it was world changing in, in its own way. And the people it touched. And, you know, I, I, when we talked earlier, I told you the story of the, 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 the psychiatrist, the, the woman, uh, uh, analyst who had two students who took David's class that were previously suicidal, who she said uh, that class saved their lives. It Mm -hmm. kept them from taking their own lives. That's why my father did that. He wanted young people that were on a search as he was to find these resources. And so this story continued. Um, But then about 2011, David was diagnosed with a, with a, a chronic illness and he had to retire. And he has subsequently, which was a great loss to me, uh, to, I missed him being out of Texas, but he moved to Oregon and a lovely place there outside of Eugene. So I get to see him there and we talk on the phone regularly. But that left a vulnerability there for that professorship, uh, that the seat was vacant, there was a search ongoing, but then there was a change in university leadership at the college level and uh, a person came in who was, uh, I think, very sort of conventional, meaning he adhered to the old myth of materialism that had really been disproven 100 years before in the laboratories of the quantum physicist. Mm-hmm. But he was a materialist. He wasn't interested in Jung. And so he wanted to go a different direction. That was very difficult for me because my this is my father's sure. really sort of dying wish his legacy and so so what do i do do i uh, uh, legally engage and try to force them to keep going uh, towards that far horizon where meaning rises like the sun that we've been doing or or you know what 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 does one do here and then it occurred to me that instead of trying to uh, force something to do something that was sort of really outside the Tao at that time of, uh, of, of the events and this sort of what had become sort of a hostile, a hostile atmosphere even, what, what could I do? And then I thought, of course, the Jung Center in Houston, which is this, as I say, it is a profound, it's a timinos, it's a sacred space. It's a place of meaning and hope and purpose. And I thought the most natural thing would be to move the endowment uh, which had grown at that time, as you, one can imagine with interest over the years, uh, to Houston, 
which is just down the road to the Jung Center. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I created the Macmillan Institute for Jungian Studies. And it has been a real uh, um, blessing in my life to see how that has prospered and grown in that very fertile soil uh, that knows that the psyche is real and that there is something in nature and comes through nature uh, that has, our, as I say, has the interest of the individual at heart. And so I particularly wanted it to keep reaching out to uh, anyone who's interested in a life of uh, meaning. And so it, we put a lot of the money into online education into uh, uh, the most modern sorts of media and technologies to continue telling these stories where individuals can find their way. And one thing when I was talking to the university, I said, you know, you, you, you may not know a lot about him, but, but people that are interested in his approach to reality. And, you know, and talking about Jung, I, Jung is not a church. He's not a uh, a movement as it shouldn't be, a movement as it were. He's just a person that saw uh, reality in a new light, which is very much in keeping with the, the reality uh, that we are finding out in the most cutting edge science right now. You know, his collaborator, Wolfgang Pauli, the Nobel laureate, uh, said, you know, reality is symbolic. And uh, Reality really is we're being interpreted anew right now, or maybe it's just going back to an old way. But um, mm. at any rate, you know, things going on in science. Uh, most people, and this is just a personal observation I make, most people, most well-educated people in the media and everything, they adhere to a model of science reality that's really well over 100 years out of date. Yeah. Uh, this materialist sort of meaningless, you know, the consciousness just originates in neuro chemical, electrical activities, and uh, uh, really life is sort of meaningless and uh, nihilistic, really. What a, what a terrible, terrible uh, story. But the Jung Center tells the truest and best story of all is that there's meaning and purpose. And uh, I told the university, I said, you know, there's this wonderful lecture series, the Fay lecture series that goes with this. And you're going to lose that, too, because that was a very substantial endowment. I, I don't know whether they believe that. But Carolyn, who was still alive at that time, Carolyn Fay, was uh, just a beautiful and wonderful person. Uh, and the things she did with that center and her generosity and philanthropy, she was a, a, a loved dance and movement. So there was a lot of dance and movement therapy. They have an art gallery there. Uh, it's a complete sort of holistic uh, approach uh, to healing and making a person whole. They have a mind, body, spirit institute that's attached to uh, the center. Um, their 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 new their director uh, Sean Fitzpatrick does a fantastic job doing outreach to uh, mental health providers and. Uh, 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 any number of communities in Houston. Uh, he just spoke to a group in Haiti. I mean, what a great place. Mm -hmm. But so anyway, the Fay Lectures uh, had a couple of gaps, and then they reignited at the center. And today we're reaching more people, touching more uh, uh, souls, changing more uh, 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 views, and really just helping people 
do the only job any of us really have, which is to be ourselves. And it's very hard to know what that is. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody has our, you know, everybody has ideas for us, our parents, our partners, our, our friends, our social media, our university, whatever. And it's hard to know who you are, but nature, the, the carrier of the psyche and nature comes through the individual. And it could be uh, a paramecium in a puddle in Papua New Guinea. It could be a big sur sequoia. It could be a, an ant on a leaf in the Congolese rainforest. Uh, it could be a beetle frantically <laughs> scuttling across a cafe sidewalk in Rome, or it could be a, you know, a Harvard professor a migrating gray whale, but nature works through the individual. Try something new. The creator, and I use that term uh, uh, as whatever the, whomever uh, the author of nature is, that comes through and is interested in you be you. You try something new. Every individual, whether it's an ant, a dolphin, that Baltimore Oriole in your backyard mm-hmm. or a first grader in a favela in Sao Paulo, trying something new, being that individual, being that carrier of meaning and purpose into the future and creating something new. Very well said. Very well said. And I would like to talk a little bit more about this Faye lecture series, some of the things that the listeners might not know. Uh, It's continuing through the Macmillan Institute for Jungian Studies, which you founded. And this year's presenter will be the Jungian analyst, Nancy Ferlotti. She will be my guest uh, coming up here in about three weeks. So she's my guest for October 2021 on Speaking of Jung. She's going to tell us all about what she's going to be talking about this year and I would also like to mention uh, just that past speakers in the series include Anne Casement, who was my guest in episode 51. She was the 2019 Faye lecturer. Also, Murray Stein, James Hollis, Stanton Marlin, George Hoganson, uh, Henry Abramovich. These are all past Faye lecturers who have been guests on Speaking of Young. And the lectures were then published as books by Texas A&M University Press, and they are available. This is something else I wanted to mention. They're available in digital version on their website, which I'll provide a link to in the show notes. You can download these books for free. So, Tell us about how the Macmillan Institute has picked this up and what it consists of. So, for instance, this year, again, it will not be held in person or it will? I can't remember. It will be held it in will. person. Okay, wonderful. It'll be online and in person. It'll be free. Uh, it's open uh, That's to, wonderful. to all. To all. Uh, Nancy Ferlotti is a, a, a fantastic analyst. She's a, a, a dear friend I've known for years. She serves on the board of Pacifica Graduate Institute with me. Uh, and she's going to speak on the great culture myth of the Mayas, the Popol Vuh. A fantastic, what a wonderful topic. Yeah. Um, and these books, you know, they, because this was set up, Carolyn set up her Fay Lecture series and my father set up the, his in, 
the, the professorship, which is now the institute, uh, for its educational purposes right. for anyone, any any orientation, any gender, any demographic, male, female, any other uh, self-identification, uh, any uh, income level. This is an opportunity to learn and to uh, uh, really work in a using sort of a Buddhist term, your your own enlightenment and your own relationship to to nature, the universe, and beyond uh, this transcendental, timeless, uh, uh, transtemporal, transspatial psyche that comes through. And um, and the book, but the books themselves, I would encourage you to buy the books from the University Press because you know number one. The, the books are beautiful objects in their own, you know, the covers, they lavish great detail on these books. And yeah. you can, if you look on Amazon or other places, you can see the covers and things, but they're just fantastic uh, 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 testaments to these analysts that have are really changing lives all over the world. I mean, we had Hayao Kawai uh, 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 from Japan, who, who is, he's passed on, uh, Heyong Shin out of China, uh, wrote on the psychology of the heart. Um, we had people from England. We have Astrid Berg from South Africa about the great healing that has had to go on in that country as they reconciled uh, the opposites down there. Um, uh, you know, I, I go back to that dream of my father's where he was in the home of that African-American family. That was a big ask. That was a big lift for a little boy to heal, heal that uh, great sort of original uh, founding sin of America was, was, was slavery, this rejection of our brothers and sisters. And uh, she, she writes about such things. And to add on to that story and that lion dream, later on, my father and I went to that same family back, it must have been in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. And we did go into their home and we did spend time with them. And it was uh, Henry and Maddie Lowry. And may their names live forever yeah. <laughs> because they were very profound influences on my father. We went into their home, still a modest uh, place there in the country, and got to talk to them and visit with them and make that dream walk the earth. Mm. And that's what I hope we're doing. Uh, uh, yeah, dreaming the with dream the, with, forward. Yeah, dream the dream on in at the, the, the Jung Center there. Uh, the Faye Lecture Series, the Faye family still involved. Carolyn died a while back. I, I can't go on enough about Carolyn, what she did. Mm -hmm. But that center today is, is involved in so many things in so many good ways. I mean, um, I'm biased. I'm on the board. But it's a true story. You know, the old uh, there was an old saying that was on, the, oh, I'd forget the TV show, but I think uh, Walter Brennan, I'm, I'm of an age to remember him. You know, he, had, he said something in that show. He said, if it's true, it ain't bragging. And uh, I'm not I'm not bragging. I'm just telling the truth. That center is involved with the uh, com the poorest of the poor in the communities, the arts district, uh, the, the medical center. And it's all this uh, goes back to the hub of the, the, the ties, all the spokes together. It's the reality of the psyche that there is something meaningful that comes through nature and and i can't emphasize this enough that is and, it, and we, most commonly through dreams that's the main experience but you can have these experiences and waking and uh, synchronicities and things but there is something 
or some beyond a person, you know, that's a, not a great explanation, but there is something in nature that, or well, I would say comes through nature. It comes out of beyond time and into time and space and is interested in the individual. No one's ever alone. No one's ever forgotten. You know, people are lonely nowadays. They, they don't feel known. They don't feel listened to. They don't feel accepted for who they are. The psyche does that. It don't place great demands on you. Uh, it'll ask things of you that are difficult. You know, uh, one of my favorite stories is, uh, and I, gosh, I forget who it was. I don't know if it was St. Teresa of Avila or whoever it was, but she was in a cart or something. And, uh, uh, you know, it went into a ditch and fell over and, you know, and she was praying to get help. And she said something to God. She said, you know, God, you know, you know, wonder so many people don't like you because look, because they look how you treat your friends. Um, you know, that was a rough episode in her life. But I think the psyche places great demands on, on one to, uh, to do these things. But with the help, uh, like I say, you're not alone. And, you know, most moderns are, we're good Freudians. Um, you know, we understand complexes and troubles and the importance of sex and, and, and whether it's functional or dysfunctional. And, you know, if you see your parents kissing, then that affects you the rest of your life. And, you know, you have to wear a football helmet when you eat a hamburger or, you know, we, we understand these sort of um, being uh, joking. There. We understand these sorts of uh, effects, but it's kind of hard to be a union because it goes such so, so against the old outdated yes. myth of yep. materialism. It's a, it's again, a big lift. And I think even some unions, uh, and I, I don't think of anyone in particular, but um, even some unions are not always great unions. It's hard. It's hard growing it up in this uh, world yeah. uh, that is still uh, promulgates this materialist, meaningless story yeah. which is completely false has been completely falsified by uh, empirical observables for over a hundred years uh, that there is something uh, transcendent there is something that comes out of time and space i mean the psyche operates outside of time and space um now do we know what the provenance of this mystery no do we know exact details no you know there's an old hindu saying out of the upanishads neti neti not this not this it's so you can't be too, you know, when if you think you have it pinned down, I would be very careful or any one complete explanation. One must be careful. But that still, that said, there is great meaning, great purpose, great personality, great, and, and to me, love. I think that compassion and knowledge this certainly comes through in the in near-death experiences and things like that. The two most important things are compassion and wisdom. And I think that's in many, many religious traditions, be it Christian, Buddhist, or others. Uh, but in near-death experiences, which are these veridical, many of them, uh, and I also would send people to the, the Department of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia, where I have a dear friend, Ed Kelly, uh, Jim Tucker, uh, Bruce Grayson, or some of the best scientists in the world talking about uh, uh, near-death experiences. And uh, um, you know, we put all these labels, psi, clairvoyance, precognition. They're all just 
partial explanations of the observables. You know, observables are better than theory. Uh, and the psyche just acts outside of time and space and seems very interested in the individual. And what a man, what a existential myth, what an existential uh, story that is, and what hope and meaning it provides for anybody, anywhere, any income level. You are known, you're important, and the universe is interested in you and wants you to do well. And that's hard to, that's hard to accept sometimes because, you know, there are many, many bad days and many, many sad days. But the good in the balance tremendously outweighs that. And that's what they're doing at the Jung Center in Houston. And that's what my father wanted to do with his professorship. And uh, later now, the Macmillan Institute for Union Studies. And I think that's being done. It's been um, the great thing in my life that I've been able to be a part of that. Uh, and uh, I think uh, uh, this story is for everyone. I wish more people uh, would uh, read Jung, more people would. Uh, uh, and you know, when you read Jung, as again, I say, he's not a church. You can follow your own spiritual tradition. You can follow your own explanations. But Jung simply said, you have to understand I consider the psyche real. It's living. It's active. And that's the storyline. No one's a stranger. No one's forgotten. You're remembered every night in, in your dreams. And there's a dialogue there. I've had some very profound uh, dreams that uh, would, have to <laughs> would have to be for another time. But... Uh, uh, this is what I think we're trying to do with uh, these things we've been talking about today. And that's what you're doing, Laura. You, this show is, the more I've come to know about it and listen, is uh, you're really, uh, this is going, you're, you're <laughs> well, I don't know whether you like this or not. Again, I think it's true. I really think you're sort of a bodhisattva. You are an enlightened being who is here for the uh, further enlightenment of all sentient beings, as the Buddhists say, to help them uh, gain their own enlightenment. And that's what this show does. What a great thing. And, and I'm so uh, honored and, and feel very, as they say in Texas, tickled to, to be a part of it. Uh, you have, you're, you're doing just tremendous work. And let us, uh, and, and let us all, and I, I say this as a prayer uh, to Mkulunkulu, uh, or a great mysterious or God or however one directs such things to, that we all go on this journey. Um, they're all, we all, we travel separate paths, but we walk beside one another. And uh, we all go towards that horizon where that sun of meaning rises. And uh, we'll get there at some point. We'll be there. Uh, it, uh, it's ongoing. It's an ongoing story. It doesn't end. Uh, endings happen in time. This is a story that's in time and outside time and in eternity. And we'll all get to see each other there and exchange these stories and go on learning and go on living and go on, go on being who uh, we're meant to be. That's just like, sounds like a lot of fun to me. Hmm. 
Sure does. Thank you so much for joining us today, Frank. You Again, Laura, my pleasure. I, I, I could not have enjoyed it more. Please visit the website, speakingofyoung, that's J-U-N-G, dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. And it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device, simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. Links to Amazon's new Echo devices can be found in the show notes. So with very special thanks to Texas A&M University Press and the Jung Center of Houston, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung.